This is part two of the Paul Joyce interview, which takes place over a whole day and at different locations. So occasionally I'll have to explain why we've stopped or the subject suddenly changes. Okay, we know about the visuals and the, and the scripts. A key element of Doctor Who is, is is sound as well, and I think the music's lovely for Warriors Gates. What do you remember of of uh, scoring it? The post production procedure was was a, again a bit difficult because uh, Nathan Turner had very very uh, strong views about what could cut and what couldn't. You know, I remember there was a shot where a K nine is following someone through a doorway. And he said, that doesn't cut together. It looked perfectly all right to me. But it's a question that, that, you know, he was like two feet behind where he should be on the cut or something. Uh, and so I seem to be uh, always having to deal with pedantic detail or questions about pedantic things where the larger picture was, was not being seen. And um, the music was a case where you could, you know, sort of at least stitch things together and, you know, where there were holes or whatever. Yeah, so, no, that was nice to do. Uh, yeah, I remember those sessions as being very productive. Uh, but I don't remember the post-production procedure as being particularly enjoyable, and again, under pressure. And do you think, I mean, obviously you've had a... You've done so many things outside of Doc Two. So, I mean, at the time with the fallout of that, were you, did you feel that you'd you'd somehow things were going to be difficult? Now you'd held yourself back, or, or were you? Did you shrug it off quite easily and move into other directions? I mean, what was the immediate aftermath of? Well, I did a film on four again with David uh, to gain a story which uh, Derek Mahan wrote and David Warner was in it. Tom Bell, uh, Don McCann, you know. Terrific cast. I always cast well. Paul mm. Schofield. Mm. Um, you know, uh, and I thought my career was was on track, but it didn't didn't happen. Somehow, that summer lightning, the Turgenev story, didn't arrive at the wrong time. You know, subsequently we got the wings of the dove and a whole lot of you know merchandisery, and I think summer lightning holds up very well against there. Efforts with the classics, but somehow I was overlooked. I don't know if it was because of the, uh, you know, the flack of the fallout, uh, the smoke clearing from the Doctor Who. I don't know. I mean, um, but by then I was setting up my own company and doing a lot of documentaries, going to Hollywood. Well, I was going to say because practically, you know, as well as you, you one has to earn a living. So yeah, I moved to that. I had two kids to bring up, and uh, I needed to. And so Lucida Productions I then um, was around when Channel 4, um, when Jeremy Isaac set up the channel. And uh, of course David was, uh, Rose was employed as the first film on 4 executive. And that's when I did one for him and I, he bought another script which was not made because his hands on the reins were weakening then. 
and someone else took him. Was tickets for the Titanic? Was that? Oh uh, well, that was tickets for the Titanic. Was uh, William someone a producer who does uh, or did uh, sort of countdown time? Oh, history. William G. Stewart. William G. Stewart. Seems there's another Why story in that. <laughs> Why do I end up with these people? William G. Stewart. Again, there was a uh, Barry, someone had written the script for that, and again, it was, why well, well, I have to sit down for and rewrite it. Again, you'll, you'll see there's, uh, I think, a joyous humour in that script. Tickets for the Titanic. But I cast Anna Carter and Jonathan Price. Mm. You know, I mean, I don't, I don't <laughs> about when I'm casting. The, ch- the thing is, they didn't give me enough, too many chances. And I'm not sure why. So, well, I, I, I guess the, the question I'm about to ask has already answered itself. So you, even though you've had this very creative life and career and were surrounded by beautiful paintings and you've got an illustrious body of work behind you, you would have liked to have done more television oh, drama and film right, and drama. drama yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm an, and, and theatre too, because I directed Max Wall and The Caretaker. I cringe. Now... Didn't, didn't leave. Didn't leave him. I did a, uh, a great double bill of Pinter and Orton, and Orton at the Soho Poly, which was um, Prunella Scales, John Hurt, and David Warner. That was for the cast. In what plays? It was um, uh, The Dumb Waiter, and the Orton was Ruffian on the Stair. Wow. David Warner, Prunella Scales, and John, John Hurt. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I always knew how to count. So actually, it's, it's, it, and again, because it's not because Warriors Gate is so much about the technical and the script side of it. Act, you know, actors like working with you. Then you're good. You're good with actors. Ask David. Yeah. Well, it was day yes for the the listeners who don't know. It was David Warner that put us in touch. He said, dropping a name massively. Uh, David's great. Yeah, and wonderful actor. I wish I'd done more uh, stage with him. Oh, anything with him. We've reconvened to a pub, but that's because the conversation is very interesting. So um, we, we alluded before to the fact that we'd been put uh, in touch by David Warner, yeah. and that has led us to talk of all sorts of other people and Hollywood directors. So, so we'll, we'll start with that, David Warner and, and Sam Peckinpah, and then maybe we'll take an excursion to Hollywood. I met um, David when I did a documentary uh, for Universal Pictures in the late 70s which was about uh, the director, Peter Hall, making his first film, which was called Work is a Four-Letter Word and Cilla Black. And, uh, and almost all the Royal Shakespeare Company uh, players that um, Hall had uh, developed and um, encouraged when he was at the Royal Shakespeare Company. Cilla Black, David Warner, was from a Henry Living's play called A. The play was interesting, the film was... T- was um, a disappointment and uh, meant to be a comedy which was distinctly unfunny. My documentary was more successful than the film, I think, because it was nominated as a British entry to the Berlin Film Festival in 1968. And David Warner and I subsequently kept in touch and um, became uh, friends, and we've remained so ever since. And um, he was then represented by a uh, very famous and uh, wonderful agent called Julian Belfridge, 
And um, David called me and said that Julian had uh, been in touch with him regarding a request from a uh, director of um, B Westerns in, in Hollywood um, called, as he, as he thought, Sam um, Chicken Coop or Peckin Poop. So I said, well, um, the only one I know that's anywhere close to that, David, is Sam Peckinpah, who then made uh, two films. The Deadly Companions and Ride the High Country, the latter being a elegiac western, which, of course, Sam became famous for, um, starring Randolph Scott and John McCrae, two great veterans. And uh, uh, I was then working for Universal at 139 Piccadilly, and they had a viewing theatre downstairs, and I was a friend of the house, and so I managed to get hold of a print of Ride, of the, Ride the High Country, and... Uh, which was wonderful colour cinemascope western and ran it for David one evening and after 15 minutes of watching the beginning of the film he leapt up said get me a phone to somebody and uh, uh, called Julie and said I'll I'll do anything this man wants you know back and forth and that uh, was the beginning so I introduced David to Sam and uh I didn't know Sam personally at that time, although I got to know him subsequently when he came to do Straw Dogs, because uh, I helped him with some of the locations, finding the locations. And David, of course, was in that. But um, David then was uh, unable to fly. He, he refused to fly. So he had to go Circuitous route to visit Sam, who was somewhere in some southern state or Mexico or somewhere. He had to go via the Queen Elizabeth to New York and then Amtrak and took him about three weeks to get there, I think. Uh, and they got on famously and um, he, David was cast in uh, The Ballad of Cable Hogue and then he did um, Cross of Iron. Tony Lawson edited that. And uh, Straw Dog. Sam was uh, a great, great director and um, an extremely interesting man. You know, he, he read the King James Version of the Bible and Shakespeare for fun, you know. I mean, you think about a Hollywood maverick, it wouldn't, oh, with, with enormous sensitivity. I remember someone said, um, that towards the end of his life uh, they met with Sam who died when he was age 59 I think and he looked like he was 80 you know and he unrecognisable but I remember Sam as a as a man you wouldn't want to f*** with and uh, he was all uh, apparently all man on the outside but had this enormously sensitive uh, artistic inner core although he was hideous to his women and so on but he came out of a tradition which was um, a western tradition which uh, is in his films and was part of his, his personality as well well and, and that, that sort of hard living nature seems to have um, with straw dogs I took, didn't Ken Hutchinson run into the sea and catch pneumonia and and, and T.P. McKenna break his arm and David's on crutches, isn't he? So 
Yeah, had a lot of walking wounded actors on, on that set. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I think... Um, I mean, Sam wouldn't uh, suffer falls. And um, I remember when David was doing uh, The Ballad of Cable Hogue, which was in some desert community, miles from anywhere, the buses would come regularly to the location and people would come off of whores, usually, and, uh, and actors would get off the bus and, and a whole hoop, uh, troop of whores and actors would get back on the bus. Because Sam had fired them, or had his way with them or fired them, and it was, the expression was, on the bus, you're on the bus. So he was, um, you know, he was, he was difficult to work for, but he loved you, you know, if you, if you were good. I mean, he clearly adored William Holden in The Wild Bunch, he, he modelled himself on William Holden. Uh, but thinking about, and it, it's a great privilege to, to be old enough to have met with people like Penguin, because that was in the tradition of John Ford and, you know, and, and the, the birth of film. I feel, you know, connected via people like Sam to that very, uh, those beginnings, you know. It's in my blood, you know, said it all. Well, I'm, I'm glad, as an aside, that you differentiate between whores and actors, because not everybody does. <laughs> uh, but, yes... I think there was a distinct difference in Sam's <laughs> mind and probably in the payment. I think the whores got much better pay than the actors. <laughs> Um, so yes, this does take us on to another aspect of your career where you have made documentaries and chronicled this great love of yours, which is cinema. So how, yeah, yeah. how did you practically get to the point of, of doing that? I'd done, after the Doctor Who episode and uh, David Rose still... I mean, he was aware that there was not an easy ride for me on Doctor Who, but we, we were professional colleagues and friends uh, although he always maintained an interesting distance from his collaborators uh, David and I, so I never became intimate with him or Karen his wife we just remained friends but he, he commissioned a, a film on four which uh, RTE uh, co-funded with uh, Paul Schofield and Tom Bell and, and David Warner Leonie Mellinger and um, Donald McCann, the great Irish actor. So uh, it was a Turgenev story which Derek Mahon, a wonderful Irish poet and writer, uh, and I, we, we did the screenplay together because I believe that most directors worth their salt should write their material or, or co-author the material. I don't think you can really be a true auteur without an input into the script, which is what, of course those wonderful American directors that we know as, as, um, as great names would do as a matter of course. I mean, what I did with Doctor Who was not unusual in the Hollywood mm. scenario. You would take a piece of shit, you know, and polish it and change it. And Nicholas Ray, you know, Robert Siodmak, I mean, any, they'd all be Don Weiss, you know, I mean... Uh, They'd all be uh, tinkering with the script. There's an interesting book on Marlon Brando. I did a film about Marlon. Just come out, you know, where uh, his archive has been um, unveiled, you know, or, or at least open to this particular writer, a woman. And um, 
you know, it's clear that he rewrote almost every line he said. In, in The Godfather, which is, you know, Francis Coppola's a great writer. Uh, but Marlon was... He knew what he had to say within the character. So there's a, there's a great tradition of, um, of directorial input in Hollywood at that level, at the development of the screenplay and, and the delivery of the script, which is why I was talking earlier about David Fincher and, and the directors now who in the old days would have been entirely involved in cinema, in working in film, and now working in television. And the reason is they've got the money, they've got the clout, they've got the power, and they've got the ability to, t- to, stel- to tell multiple stories or deal with multiple characters in a very deep and interesting way. I mean, if you look at the way that House of Cards is now in its third, if not its fourth series, how those characters are developing... And they're probably developing, rather like a Curb Your Enthusiasm would, the character would develop as a new series is implemented. You know, That means that the character has different layers of, of his onion skin exposed. That's, I mean, what more exciting thing can you have dramatically than that? Shakespeare, we will know that if Shakespeare was alive, like Alan Bleasdale, he would be, you know, he'd be writing TV. Or collaborating, or script editing, or, you know, polishing like Tom Stoppard does. Tom does a lot of polishing. You know, in that tradition, in that case, Stoppard, he was my best man, my first uh, marriage. I don't know him well now, but I've watched his career, and I know that he he does a lot of um, script doctoring. You know? Yeah. Got a problem, Tom's a man. And there's a tradition of that in Hollywood as well, you know. High pay, no credit. It's great, you know. Well, you, cho- you choose your person for a particular project. Interesting, you mentioned Fincher, who, of course, famously had his earliest experience was to uh, have a not very happy experience on a science fiction franchise, which was uh, Alien 3. <laughs> and which he did a very good job, incidentally. I think it's one of the best in that. Uh, everybody who starts into a, into a big budget franchise like that with, I mean, that looks like a major example of my minor experience. Yeah, I just thought it had a, a nice parallel with yours. I think it would be. <laughs> Unfortunately, I didn't go on like David Fincher <laughs> to do Seven and you know, and uh, the whole range of wonderful things, uh, which uh, you know I would have been much better off in Hollywood because I think I would have been spotted at least as somebody to you know give a chance to, even if it was Roger Corman, you know who wanted to employ me, but like um, Monty Hellman said, you know, he always makes you an offer you can't accept. Um, and what about the art and photography side of uh, your work then? Is that, was that something that you'd always done, that, but that you managed to turn into uh, a, a profession, or has it always been something that is...? I think it's... Um, I became quite well known in the 70s for panoramic black-and-white landscapes. And the reason for that was quite simple. As a child, I remember seeing The Road, which was um, the first cinema script. I was just in shorts, with my uh, feet not touching the ground. I gazed up at the screen, uh, which opened. In those days, they opened. In those days, they had an organist, you know, on Sundays, who came up and, and 
came to performance, and mm-hmm. especially on Sunday. But during the week, uh, it was like going into, um, you know, the Granada Sydenham, where, where I spent most of my youth. But I remember sitting younger than that, um, looking at this wonderful, wonderful red velvet screen, uh, curtain, uh, covering the screen, and it's, it would roll back and, this, and the film would start. This, in this case, it rolled back, and it just continued to roll back. And the screen was, was like looking at the world. It was just enormous. And that was the first time I saw CinemaScope. Then I realised that that was... If you're going to represent the world, that's a way to do it. Which is more or less as you see. Very broadly, with the, with the far extremities out of focus. In this case, everything was in focus. Richard Burton, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, when I turned to photography, I turned to a panoramic format, which was difficult to achieve. Now you can do it with Photoshop, stitch it all together. It's funny, isn't it, how uh, the the means of um, uh, reproduction and transmission pr- proliferate, but the images get worse. Uh, there was a time about fifteen years ago when I got seriously worried. I thought. The kind of work that I do is everybody's going to do. Of course, they can't. Thank God. You know, you have to have, a, so to speak, a touch of the poet in you to, to, to do it. And most people don't have that, or try for it and uh, and fail and give up, which is great. You know, it's like I was talking about. Um, you know, people said on uh, Warriors Gate, "Oh, he's he's." He's close to a breakdown. He's, you know, he's um, he's not functioning. I was never close to a breakdown. I was quite tired and very frustrated and upset. I was never close to a breakdown, you know, because you know, either you break down or you don't. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's quite simple, you know. I wasn't. I was under enormous pressure because I would not. I would not lower my standards to compromise time. And so when they say there was confusion on the floor, the confusion was because we were running out of time to do it the way it had to be done. That's what was happening. And they, what they saw was confusion, which was reaching the end of a, of a, of a time. The second hand was ticking, as I told you mm. on my first experience as a director. I had control with David. I didn't... Uh, well, I'm Doctor Who, I didn't... Uh, the control was um, was out of out of my reach. There were too many elements that I could I couldn't deal with all at once. So is that where painting, for example, comes in? Is because you don't have you, you, it's yeah, just yeah. you. Yeah, yeah, you, you, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's wonderful to be responsible, entirely responsible for your own cock-ups. Of course, there are great things about film making. I remember when I was doing the um, the film on Foreign Island, Summer Lightning. Uh, I sent um, a second unit out. To, there was a, a, a boy, the, the boy who, whose story it is becomes Paul Schofield in old age. And he's recalling falling in love for the first time. And he goes into what is basically a secret garden at night and he pushes the door open. It's a garden where he sees his father in a... 
strike of lightning illuminated where he's been to visit his mistress, who is the girl that the son has fallen in love with. But I sent a second unit out to do this quite simple shot of opening the gate, and they brought it back. I thought it was absolutely magical. I thought, me, it's better than I could have done. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes it's great, you know, to, to, to be in a situation where something just arrived, a great gift. They just got the light right, they, got the, they had the actor there, there was no one really directing it, the cameraman directed it. Fantastic, just worked, you know. So you get those kind of wonderful accidents in, in, in filmmaking. And you get, you know, the, the, the bad times like, like Doctor Who. I mean, it's so strange, the, uh, the Doctor Who, that it comes back home, you know. Mm. You're here, we're talking... It, it, you know, I'm back in the studio now, John Nathan Turner biting his fingernails when he just smoked 40 fags in 40 minutes, you know. Uh, it, it all comes back, you know. Strange. Do you mind that? I mean, because obviously we've had some conversations about very high-minded things and very worthy things, and Doctor Who was designed as popular culture, yet yeah, it yeah. is something that has lasted. Is is that a sign of its quality, or is it a sign that there's a, there's a lot of strange people about? And do you mind it? Uh, what, the fact that Warriors Gate doesn't... No, the fact, the fact that Doctor Who is something that, if you're in it, comes back to haunt you. Well... To be quite honest, between you and I, I don't give a monkey's fart about Doctor Who as a, as a continuing institution. I mean, I think most of it was crap. I think most of it now is crap. I think Russell Davis is a very talented writer. I, I see precisely the same problems with the later Doctor Who's as with mine. They won't employ directors. They won't employ proper directors. Uh, Although individual episodes can be very good, you know, the, there is no acknowledgement of the of directorial contribution. Nothing's changed. Uh, and I think an awful lot of rubbish is talked about Doctor Who as an institution, you know. I mean, the only reason we talk about it is it's survived. But it's gone on, it's like coronation. It's there, still there. And there have been great episodes, and I wouldn't put mine in, in that necessarily. Although I couldn't name the great ones, because I didn't give a about them, really. Uh, and I think there were Doctor Whos who were so inconsiderable as to be worthy of reje <laughs> rejection forever. I mean, they're very bad Doctor Whos. As performers, I think Tom Baker was the best. You know, I was, I was fortunate. At this point, we stopped and had something to eat. See, the difference between David Rose and uh, John Nathan Turner is chalk and cheese. You know, David Rose would come on to the occasion and have Mozart's Jupiter Symphony playing on his headphones on the time when we weren't shooting. John Nathan Turner should have been, should have done um, Bill Cotton's job as a kind of controller of light entertainment on BBC. Yeah. I remember he, uh, John Nathan Turner told me that he was in Bill Cotton's office 
and um, somebody came in and said, I've got, uh, the, there's, a, there's a project here. Um, I was just saying that John Nathan Turner was in Bill Cotton's office. It's wonderful, thank you. Thank you. And uh, someone came in and said, we've got Gracie Fields' uh, story, the latter years. Bill Cotton said, no, not interested, thanks, next. And I remember Nathan Turner said, this is madness, you know, that, the Gracie Fields story, you know? Yes, yes. And I could see John Nathan Turner. He was, he should never have been with Dr. Who. He should have been doing, in the same way that at the end of this bad experience with him, I said, okay, John, what do you think? What do you think of that? He said, well, I think you're a filmmaker, you know. I think you should be doing top-end drama. That's where you're clearly, you're, you're talented. I was right about him, he was right about me. Neither of us got the, <laughs> got the ambition that the other yeah. suggested as appropriate. That's what he would have been great at. In those years, not now, Yeah. in the 80s and early 90s, he could have done that. Yeah. Handled Morecambe and what? He could have done all that. At this point, I think we ordered pudding. The directors that I really admire are the ones with a sense of humour, you know. Usually with an extremely, like, wilder, wickedly dark and dangerous sense of humour. And that, and I feel myself part, part of that. Uh, Sam Beckenbauer had a bit of that too. Um, but not like Wilder, who was uh, exceptional. In that respect, and Kubrick as well. If you look at Lolita, it's all black comedy, really. The whole, whole thing is, is a, as indeed it senses the Nabokov novel. But um, the 2001 is funny. Not laugh out loud, you know, slap your thigh, but um, the comedy of life, of um, peculiarities of human behaviour are the things that, that, that great directors pick up on. I'm not part of that, but I just learn from it. That's what I love, watching it, seeing. So those things between the two characters, you know, Freddie and... Well, they're like... It's, it's funny that you mentioned Tom well, Stoppard. It's Rosa it's Rose 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 Stone are dead. It's precisely that. Yeah. It's waiting for Goddard. Beckett, who I knew. People talk about Beckett. There's a huge... Festival, Alice Gillian or somewhere, I don't know. They're all going mad over Beckett. Even John Calder, you know, his publisher, didn't quite understand it, as far as I could see. He's very funny. People bang on about, you know, Pinter and the silences, and the resonance, this, that, and that. He was a comedian, he was, he was a comedic writer. And so was Beckett. They're part of a theatrical tradition, which had to do with a Shakespearean theatrical tradition, which had to do with banter, with passing time. How do you pass time? How do they pass time on the spacecraft? All to do: check a few instruments and look after a, couple, a few dead, apparently dead bodies. Got hours and days to go.
Well, they smoke and they play cards and they bet on things, you know. But what do we do? <laughs> More or less the same thing. Try and fill our time, you know, between death and now and death. Struggle to um, to be active to keep it at bay. That's what we're doing. Well, you, I, you, I can't let it pass that you said Samuel Beckett. I knew him. I don't think I've ever met anybody that's ever met Samuel Beckett. So, tell me about Samuel Beckett. How did you How did you meet Beckett? And you know, we, I only see him as a literary figure. I don't know anything about the man in that regard. What he's like as a person. In 1965 the Royal Shakespeare Company at the Aldwych presented a series of plays uh, on Sunday nights only, which were sort of perform... They were kind of performances um, barely rehearsed and, and very often without props. They were kind of short pieces. And I saw... A series of short pieces, including one by Samuel Beckett called Act Without Words 2. And there were two actors in it. I didn't know Sam Beckett. I had no rights to the material. As usual, I bragged my way into, you know, the dressing rooms of uh, Geoffrey Hinsliff and, um, and Freddie Jones. So I got a friend of mine who was a, a, light, a lighting cameraman called Peter Theobald, and uh, we hired an Araflex. It's wonderful. I, as a filmmaker, you still hear that, the noise of, of the film running through the magazine. And I know a film, a 16mm magazine, 400 feet, lasts about 11 minutes, 40 seconds. And I can tell from the sound of the, the claw mechanism going through the film, running it through, how much is used on it. You know. Wow. That's what you learn, well, because that's what you hear. You don't high definition tapes different. You, you there's a limited time you have, and um, so anyway, we shot this. Uh, they agreed to do it. I rewrote the script. <laughs> Can you imagine <laughs> rewriting Samuel Beckett uh, to accommodate? So you see Laurie come up, and it, it's about two sacks, which moved their way across the stage in this case across the rubbish dump and you know two characters one very bright and breezy and the other one dopey get out of the sacks do a, a daily routine get back in the sacks one of them carries the other sack across and they just move move a bit further you know it's like another day's gone by fantastic it's the whole of life summed up in 16 minutes by a genius so so um I shot this thing. I mean, I've still got it. It's kind of embarrassingly um, amateur. Freddie's great. And um, so I thought, what the f am I going to do with this now? So I got in touch with John Calder. John Calder published extremely um, intellectual and largely unreadable French books. I've got in touch with him. And Pat McGee was quite helpful. So Sam knew about me. Paul said, well, he's coming in September. All right, he said, Joyce, um, come over to my flat. 
It's in Harley Street. Up I went. There's this huge room. Lit by, you know, with books and things. And there was this shadowy figure over the far end of the room. Oh, Joyce, yes, come in. Called us out, you know. What's all that? Well, I said, no, 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 it's called her, it's the, you know, I have to, this is the paraphernalia. Oh, my God, it's a lot of it. Better bring it in, then. So I trundled it out of the lift, and I had to set up this screen, the projector, and everything. Oh, he said, oh, you better come over. Sam. Sam was deaf as a post. Didn't know I was there. He looked up. He's in this pool of light. It's like a stage set with a, with a Guinness in front of him. And he looked up, and I looked down, and I was looking into the face of Samuel Beckett, one of my great heroes. I just made an illegal film of his work. Oh, Mr. Joyce is there. I said, Mr. Beckett, it's such an. I said, No, no, I'm so sorry. One second. How nice to meet you. He said, you know, you've got a very interesting name. I said, yes, indeed. You worked, didn't you, for James Joyce? He said, yes. I was his secretary for some years. I said, Mr. Beckett, I've been to Connemara. I said, yes. And I've taken some photographs of Connemara, and I've been to Joyce County. And I think I'd like you sometime to have one of those photographs I took of Connemara. Caller said, Mr. Joyce, uh, can we get on with this thing, film? Uh, you brought this film, haven't you? I said, yes, excuse me, Mr. Beckett, I'll just go and um, set up the film. Oh. So I go and set up the film. I put the projector up and the screen up, and I put a couple of chairs for him. And Are you finished, Mr. Jo- yes, John, um, yep, yep, we're just about ready. Sam, Sam, better come over. Oh, oh. So, I'm there, I've got the projector, two chairs. I'm ready to go. To project it. So Beckett sits on his chair, stands up with his chair stuck to his bum, and goes right up to the screen so he's about 18 inches away from it. And sits down. I looked at Calder, I said, what's he doing? Well, he's, he's blind, isn't he? He can't see anything. He's got to be close. So I, I moved the projector around to try and get it so that his shadow is not on the screen. Can't, as soon as I move the projector around, <coughs> Sam moves his chair around. So in the end, I have to project it with Sam's shadow as part of the... Because he's blind. So I start the film. And um, I'm terrified, obviously. Calder's irritated. And Sam seems to be shaking. His shadow, he's projected onto the screen, along with Freddie Jones and Jeffrey Hinsmith and all the rubbish, is shaking like this. And so I... um, I creep up in the dark. I think he's he's, he's so annoyed he's going to you know he's going to assault me. 
and he was laughing. That, the shaking was, was silent laughter. It's only about 16 minutes of film ends. Calder puts on the lights. Complete silence. Nobody says a thing. Finally, Sam says, uh, well, Mr. Joyce, uh, what do you want to do with it? And Calder says, Sam, he can't do anything with it. He doesn't own it. He doesn't own It's not his. It's yours. He, sh- he shouldn't have made this film. He, he can't do anything with it. Sam says, is that right? He doesn't know. Calder said, look, Sam, you make your money out of royalties. This Mr. Joyce here has not paid any... He hasn't paid... He hasn't got the rights to it. He doesn't own it. He can't do anything with it. Mr. Calder, you know, he's put it a bit baldly, but that's, that's, that's right, Mr. Joyce, yes. We said. So that means that um, we... Yes, yes, Sam, said Calder... He's got to negotiate a price. So that means, Mr. Joyce, that we've got to come to some arrangement about the uh, rights. He said, yes. Well, we said, what about 50p? Isn't he fabulous? Uh, Which means there's another episode from him. Uh, His charity in the meantime is Oxfam. uh, oxfam Oxfam.org.uk, a fine charity. Uh, And Paul will be concluding his conversation with me in two podcasts' time because the next one we've got... uh, We're going to go back to Stephen Gallagher uh, and he'll tell us about his other Doctor Who story, Terminus, amongst other things. Uh, In the meantime... Uh, follow me on Twitter at Toby Haydock and uh, Big Finish uh, at, at Big Finish. And if you want to Google Toby Haydock Virgin Giving, it will tell you how you can give me money uh, for, for running, which for an old loaf like me is something of an achievement. But if not, uh, I just look forward to uh, you hearing next week's Toby Haydock's Who's Root. Goodbye. Welcome to the Isle of Wight, Mr. Hunt. Huh. A penal colony is the last place I expected mm, to I know how you feel. Is it certain? It's certain. Where? Five miles out, 30 fathoms down. Answer me! What are you? Are you working with Paul Hunt? Answer me, or I fire.
This area is off-limits to civilians. Move on immediately or you will be detained for questioning. Yes, sure, we're going. There is nothing to fear. children. Where's my husband? Tell me, what is this all about? Family units have been separated for transport purposes. A terrorist incident has occurred. Comply with all orders. What are you talking about? There aren't any terrorists here. You came into our homes dragging us into the street. You are being relocated. This is for your own protection. Protection from what? There is nothing to fear. Proximity alert. Something's out there. Something big. It could be a rescue ship. When have we ever been that lucky? Good point. 